couple of years ago, an old Japanese TV show called Old Enough made its way to English language Netflix. The premise is little kids, sometimes as young as three or four, navigate a town all by themselves to run errands. It's adorable and also makes you think about how different it is to move through the world as a small child, which is something urban designers are trying to take into account. They attach cameras to children to try to understand what life is like at a child scale. And so you think about car noise, well, it's that much more significant when you're smaller, or air quality changes when you're lower to the ground. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today, we're moving through the world with an artist's eye. But first, the world of puppet theater isn't limited to kids, and it can bring communities together. Stephanie Hottie is an English professor at Virginia Military Institute. She studies spectacle theater, like puppetry, and believes in the community experience of putting on a show. Stephanie, tell me about community spectacle theater. What's the spectacle part? One way to describe it, if you think about any kind of traditional theater that you might might have seen, is that language usually plays a large part of what you see and hear on stage, usually about 80%. Spectacle is a form that is largely visual. So usually you have a kind of a a range of 80% visual work. It's a combination of the visual arts, such as puppetry, embodied dance, live music, um, but making imagery on stage that is often nonlingual. So you don't just mean painting the sets. Right. I mean, a moving set, a set that uh, is telling a story, whether it's uh, something like a contestoria, which is a someone dressed up in a large skirt that unravels and has um, pictures on it, or a very large moving puppet that just through their gestures is showing you a quiet moment in their house or them going on a journey down a path. What, what sort of feeling does it give the audience to see spectacle theater as opposed to traditional theater? It's larger than life. You know, it, it, it's an experience that is so joyful because it's not something you see in everyday life, but it also connects to the reference points, emotions, experiences that you've had. Um, so I think it, it's, it belongs to everyone. It belongs to children. It belongs to adults. It actually can kind of move across those generational divides in terms of telling stories that we, that we know in our gut, but also kind of taking us to new places. I remember one time when I was younger seeing an outdoor performance of bread and puppet theater with these huge colorful characters hoisted on poles high in the air. I had never seen anything like it before, and I loved it. It's it's an incredible, incredible experience. You know, as someone who came to spectacle and to community theater, really, um, as a college student and a, a young performer in my 20s, um, my first experience with spectacle actually was uh, at All Hallows' Eve. And we did a very, very large performance on, on kind of handmade bicycled towers that we drove down Michigan Avenue dressed as skeletons. And we had fire breathers <laughs> and large puppets. And it was so exhilarating. Um, Another moment for me working with a company, Red Moon Theater in Chicago, about you know, 25 years ago, is we did a, a rendition of Frankenstein. And I really knew nothing about spectacle or even puppetry. And I said, well, can I just help? I was kind of working in the marketing department. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, you can catch Frankenstein's limbs as he comes down under the stage. 
And so I just, I kind of crawled in there and, you know, here comes his arm and here comes his hand. And he was getting dismantled kind of in a moment in the production. And it was just, there was something so freeing about being connected to an enlivened object. And, you know, a puppet can really, it's not always just a marionette. Puppets come in lots of shapes and sizes, very large population puppets. Sometimes just an object can be a puppet just by way of manipulating it. And I just I just really loved the freeing nature of that. I also was a performer who hated memorizing. And so I really struggled yeah. with word. <laughs> you know, I loved words, but I, I really struggled to kind of memorize in front of, to be prepared in front of an audience. And so spectacle as a dancer, as somebody who really liked to move, spectacle was something that allowed me to use that gift um, to tell a story without using language. Did you ever actually work with bread and puppet theater itself? I did have a really good opportunity to work with bread and puppet. They often do tours and they came with their touring company to the Museum of Contemporary Art around the time that I was working with Red Moon. And and so I made some connections and they were doing Joan of Arc, which is their kind of infamous. It's, it's a very famous piece that they often do inside, you know, not much like their their kind of big magical circus productions. Um, and I was the ear of Joan. And to be the ear really just meant you had to pay attention to the rest of this face. So I was this very, I was kind of dressed in this, holding this very large ear. And, you know, this was the moment of judgment for Joan. Um, and so I, I, I really experienced being a part of something um, that you almost can't explain. You know, here I have a nose and an ear and there's an eye and they're all the size of my body. And so you really can't think too much about it. You just have to kind of be in the moment. Um, and it was it was fabulous. How powerful is that kind of theater for ways of experiencing our world, right? Yeah, I, th- I think um, a lot of the playwrights that I admire, you know, not just in spectacle theater, but also in what I would call social theater, which is not necessarily political theater. Um, and I, I think of somebody like Anna DeVere Smith or um, someone who works in community theater like Kathleen Gallagher in, in Canada. And, and, and what I think they do or they recognize is that they're trying to focus the noise of life. They're, they're trying to find a way to focus our attention and give us kind of creative access to the things that might matter to us. So, you know, for example, someone like um, Anna DeVere Smith might be looking at real events <clears throat> in North America, such as Twilight Los Angeles or things that happen in Newark, New Jersey, But then somebody like Kathleen Gallagher, who um, works a lot in community with youth, and I and I and I think of her because she really makes sense to me when I'm working here in in Lexington, Virginia, is she understands why theater matters to the voices that we don't get to share, um, you know, in our regular lives. Life life is busy. Life is noisy. Um, and so if something's bothering us, if something feels like, hey, pay attention, you know, we don't often get to play with it except in the theater. And so I, I think this idea of, of a, a social theater, a public space in which we can invent, you know, intervene in our social experience is really, really important. And it's extremely important for young developing minds, right, who might not have a vehicle or a place to talk about what's happening. You've been working with schools and children on a performance called Wild Notion. It's an ecological tale featuring three middle schoolers from Rockbridge County. That's where you now live in a small community in the Blue Ridge. Tell me more about that experience. This is a production um, that came to me kind of in the last year, I, I approached Boxerwood, which is an organization I've done this. I've done several spectacles with them before, mostly about the harvest and other kind of community experiences that would make sense to a rural audience. 
But, you know, this moment in time feels really important to me for kind of that middle school age, especially as, you know, so much has changed, how we educate, how we experience um, the wild. And so this idea of a wild notion was to think about how young people are possibly forgetting how to dream, how to kind of think about their futures. And I really wanted to bring young people from the community in to think about what you know, what is making them anxious? You know, uh, you know, how are they connecting with the sides of themselves that maybe don't make sense or that seem scary or that seem um, out of the ordinary? And also, of course, then our wild, you know, the, the nature around us, you know, how are we connecting with that? You've been guided by the writings of the great American philosopher and educator John Dewey and his book, Art of Experience, What's moved you about his views of the way we experience nature and art, and especially the way children do? Well, I think I think we start with our senses, right? I mean, John Dewey understood that that our lives are are foremost a sensory experience, and certainly when you're thinking about nature and you're thinking about art materials, right? We really like to get our hands dirty. You know, perfect ex- uh, example here is paper mache, which makes up a large amount of the materials, recycled materials of the objects in our show. Um, and getting your hands dirty and doing it together with other people, especially non-professionals. Uh, community members who maybe don't have time to be creative. You know, they have jobs, they have families. Um, so I have everybody from parents to, you know, toddlers coming out, getting their hands dirty and getting involved, building sets and doing this work. But but I think John Dewey understood that that until you get involved with the material nature, the sensory materials, you don't really understand your own creative abilities and you can't really appreciate them. And the other thing that was is really important, um, and I think back to um, some work I did as a doctoral student in Chicago um, through the University of Illinois uh, with Red Moon Theater, and that was I, I worked with um, a group of girls who were coming from Latin families uh, in kind of the northwest side of Chicago and often had no access to the arts. And what these girls were able to do with me and and with others who were mentoring them and, and working with them was to build a girl's utopia. And that was a project that took time. And part of the project was just undergoing it together. So the not just the experience of making puppets and stilting, which we did, and uh, putting our scenery together and thinking about the content of the story, uh, which told the, the story of, of a girl, Remedios, who, who goes on this journey to Girltopia. She meets some goddesses, et cetera. But the undergoing of that work and thinking about how we were just making friends together in that space time and time again as we worked um, over the rehearsal period. So the material experience, the intervention with the materials and the undergoing over a long period of time, you know, it takes time to understand what we've made. Um, And so we're building community in the making. Don't you sometimes think you wish there were a lot more community theater productions everywhere so young people especially could have this experience when the real world has felt so alienating i do think that and and i do wish for that and i'm i'm working on it um as much as i can you know i i do wish that we could make more spaces for theater as part of our regular and traditional education um, you know, music programs have kind of subsisted, but theater programs have suffered. Um, and so I do I do hope that we can kind of use these other avenues to let young people and and you know other generations. I think different getting different generations involved is really important in terms of making community feel alive. Stephanie Hottie, thank you for sharing your insights on with good reason. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Stephanie Hottie is an English professor at Virginia Military Institute. The design of everyday objects is about usefulness, but there's also an art and a politics to it. 
Carissa Henriquez is a graphic design professor at James Madison University. She shares the innovative strategies that designers can use to be more democratic, compassionate, and effective in their work. Carissa, you do an exercise with your graphic design students about good signage and wayfinding. What's the exercise you do? I teach wayfinding and signage and exhibition design, and I'm always thinking about the human element of design. So design is this thing that is invisible in our life, like in its best forms, we're not really thinking about it, and we only really notice it when it doesn't work. And so in wayfinding, it's really important that people can find their way, that they can get from point A to point B easily. And so one way that I help students understand that is I have them go out and sort of navigate this region of downtown without their phone and record their process and their reflections and their reactions. And I wanted the students to sort of be responsive to what they're seeing in their environment and the visual cues that they encounter along the way. And so as a empathy exercise, so they're really trying to like put themselves in the shoes of a first time visitor to a space, they just have to figure it out by looking around them. So it was actually really interesting. Some of them remarked, um, once they, once they walked around downtown, they didn't even realize like certain buildings connected to one another. And there were these pedestrian pass-throughs. They took note of smaller shops. They, took note of places where there weren't signs for the street or the signs were too low or too high. And so by asking them to just put themselves in the position of what we would call like the end user, what people encounter, what they need to know um, to get from point A to point B, what makes a space really inviting um, or what makes a space maybe exclusionary and feel like hey, I don't belong here, or hey, I want to visit there and I know how to get around and I feel really, really comfortable. Do you find yourself going through life often thinking critically of spaces you encounter? I have an affection for really bad signs, actually. So um, I have folders upon folders of really poorly designed signs or things that are like hand done um, that say funny or weird things or you know, get lost in translation for me or say funny things when translated to English. And so um, I do, perhaps my my critical eye is less critical in that scenario because I'm just having fun with it. But I do take note of bad design for sure in in signage Uh and wayfinding situations, particularly when you know, that pain point hits home for me. Like I'm at an airport and I miss, I can't find my gate or instances where there is good signage, like, oh, I know I'm standing here at the gate and it's 15 minutes to get to this place or that place. And and so I know that I have enough time to stop and like get some bottled water or get a snack before I have to make my way to my gate. So all of those things are like great visual cues for people and they really um, provide a layer of information that's helpful. But I definitely observe and, you know, every time I travel other places, I'm always taking note of what works and what doesn't. And so I definitely have a whole kind of collection of inspiration points in a good way as well (laughs) for, for what does work. You also teach about democratic design. What is democratic design? So democratic design really wants, um, to challenge designers to be more inclusive in the full kind of trajectory of the design process. So if a design team thinks about what they want to make, um, even in that kind of like beginning stage when they're like, what do we want to make? We know it might be a chair. Like if I'm working for Ikea and I'm thinking about designing a new chair, I'm questioning kind of all parameters of what that chair could be or who might sit in the chair. So before I'm even getting to pen and paper or pixel and screen, I'm asking people, I'm engaging people of different ages, all kinds of things to give me more information about my given design project. So it really just sees everyday people as kind of partners in the design process. Are there companies that are sort of known for this? Well, I, I mentioned IKEA, probably best known for democratic design. The initial definition of democratic design for them, I believe, was more in terms of 
availability of design. So making good design available to more people. It's not designer, like I can go to a really fancy store and spend a lot of money to acquire something somebody else can't afford. Um, and so it really dispels that notion of, of kind of design being for the 1%. And, but that definition has migrated and shifted and changed to be inclusive of like the design process itself. So it's not just design at low cost for everybody, but it's questioning what people need, uh, what people want, how to make the design better or more functional and affordable. That also includes sustainability as a concern. There's a lot of studios... IDEO, for example, is a U.S.-based studio that uses a lot of participatory design and democratic design principles in their design process as well. I wonder if if part of the democratic design process sometimes includes crowdsourcing. So you've, you've got a good idea and you're asking people for more input about how they might make it better? Yeah, crowdsourcing is on kind of the extreme end. So if you think about like what participation looks like um, in a process of problem solving, which is what design is, you know, crowdsourcing sort of opens it up and says, everybody has a chance to give input, make it, remake it, reshare it. And so that's as totally open-ended, generative, open to all form of democratic design. Um, sort of on the the more conservative end, I guess, would be you have a design team and they are at certain points in the problem-solving process trying to engage people in a very specific way with a very specific outcome in mind. So it's a little more sort of acute and targeted as opposed to crowdsourcing. Um, and you even see that... Um, kind of extreme and just DIY culture. And that has become emergent and and massive and popular that people really want more input in the design of the things that they have in their homes or in their lives. And they want to be able to manipulate them, remix them, turn them into something completely different. And that that use case for objects is, I think, only going to grow where people like we want to be able to customize everything. I want to be able to customize my shoes. I want to customize my furniture. I want to customize my my couch or um, the function of the apps on my phone. Has there been much in the industry to use democratic design for social justice purposes? Oh, definitely. So I think a huge, you know, motivation behind democratic design is inclusivity and trying to an extent maybe right the wrongs that bad design has created for people. Design can't solve every need, but it can certainly do better and continue to evolve. And so that's one thing that's inherent in democratic design is that it's not this sort of fixed linear process that once something's made, there should be kind of critical design or post-design step where something exists, it's created, and then we're fixing it, making it better, and it's continually iterative to the extent it can be. Could it also be something where you are working with a community on a very large project, maybe, you know, new commercial space or residential Mm -hmm. space and a community that's being gentrified and that Mm -hmm. you want to minimize impact and get citizen buy-in to that? For sure, yes, and I th- I think in in urban planning, it's just so critical to engage communities that are impacted by those changes. That that is very democratic <laughs> um, to actually engage with people. We've all probably read historical examples of like quote urban renewal that has just really meant gentrification and improving a space, but not being considerate of the people who live there, so that then they can no longer afford to live there, or they are kicked out of that area. And so there's been, unfortunately, just so many historic examples of that um, over the years. And um, one urban planner that I I love his work, um, Jan Gale, he's Danish. And I take students to Copenhagen and Sweden, and we look at Scandinavian design, and we look at participatory design and green design and things like that. And, And his concept of um, urban planning is that, you know, the the cityscape should be designed at the human scale. It should be designed for um, three miles per hour at, at most five miles per hour. So we really need to think about how people walk th- through streets 
um, or bike through streets. Um, we don't need to think about how cars zoom past these sort of large utopian, bigger than life scales um, of, of urban development. And so he really acknowledges that these smaller scale neighborhoods are what's best for living, that we need to think about different scales of people like children and as well as the elderly, as well as you know, young people and middle-aged people. And so we have to design for the totality of um, what he would call the homo sapien experience. <laughs> uh, so I, I really think that it, democratic design is like super critical for um, thinking about that human element, not just thinking about things that look really nice or that cost very little or that make the most money. And in the best case, it it accomplishes all of those things, but um, at the very least, it needs to make life better for more people. Are there any designers who really inspire you in the way they use democratic design? So uh, one project that comes to mind, so Gale Designs, uh, Gale Architects, they try to understand what makes cities great places for people to live. And so it's not just the scale of the buildings or how many parks, but it's also the streetscape. And so they really look at street by street, what makes something feel welcoming or engaging. And they do a lot of wonderful things like prototyping um, what something could be like they'll close off a street or two and have a sort of pop-up like dining district or something like that. But one thing that they've also done is think about children and try to understand the human scale at like maybe two feet or three feet high instead of the, you know, adult <laughs> scale. Right. And and so they attached like cameras to, to children with the consent of their parents, of course, to try to understand what life is like at a child scale and sort of follow them around. And so you think about um, you know, car noise, well, it's that much more significant when you're smaller or air quality changes when you're lower to the ground. And so there's a lot of unique needs that we don't often think about respective to children. So we're usually thinking about as parents, can I get my stroller here or there? Um, can Is there a place for me to park and then get my stroller out of the car? Are there places where I can sit and feed my child or give them a place to play, but we're not actually thinking about their pedestrian experience apart from making sure they don't pick up something off the ground and put it in their mouth. So I think that's a really wonderful and very playful form of design research that I don't think, you know, we really take the time to, to think about. Carissa Henriquez, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much for having me. I love to talk about design. <laughs> Carissa Henriquez is a graphic design professor at James Madison University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Solastalgia is a word that describes the feeling of sadness that comes when you're looking out in an August backyard and missing the fireflies from your youth. It's the recognition that the sandy beach you're standing on is being washed away. Paul Bogart's new book includes essays on feelings like those, reflections on our environment, the book, published by the University of Virginia Press, is a collection of essays called Solastalgia, an anthology of emotion in a disappearing world. Bogard shares some of his favorite essays from the book and explains the love of his daughter of this earth that inspired him. Paul, you've kind of written about that emotion for years. I'm thinking back to your first book and the the mourning you felt for the loss of darkness in the world. Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt. In fact, uh, I mentioned Solastalgia in that book. Um, it was right after I had discovered the, uh, well, it was during the researching of The End of Night that I discovered the word Solastalgia and wrote about it and um, came back to it years later. I have never forgotten your discussion of The End of Night and your appreciation 
for the inky darkness that envelops us. I remember you saying you had always wanted to be able to chart the skies. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, you know, I, I grew up, I was so lucky to grow up in uh, Minnesota, and we had a cabin up north and on a lake. And uh, so I grew up with a firsthand experience of a real night and a real night sky. But it wasn't until uh, I was uh, out of college and actually in graduate school that I thought, um, you know, I would, I've always wanted to learn the constellations. And uh, so I set out to do that. And that's when I realized that, um, you know, I couldn't see the constellations because of, of light pollution. Do you have favorite spots in your life where you have loved the night? Oh, yeah. I mean, number one is Thunder Lake in northern Minnesota, where my family's had a cabin essentially since the year I was born, so all my life. Uh, that's the number one spot. And um, then I've been lucky to have um, some wonderful experiences. Uh, the one I write about it in the book is in Morocco at the edge of the Sahara Desert, uh, probably the most amazing sky I've ever seen. Um, the Black Rock Desert in Nevada was pretty phenomenal. Uh, Death Valley in uh, California. So I've seen some wonderful skies. Was Morocco the one where you mentioned you woke up at night and thought it was snowing for a second? That is the one, yeah. I'll never forget walking out of the, you know, I described the uh, youth hostel as more like a stable. I mean, it was pretty pretty rural, pretty rudimentary. Um, but just that experience of walking out, I'm sure it was, you know, three in the morning, four in the morning, and uh, in shorts and flip-flops um, and looking, just the instant feeling of uh, it's snowing. You know, a good Minnesota kid, that's uh, a first thought. And, uh, you know, it was snowing stars. Uh, it was so many stars from horizon to horizon and, and just all around. In the book, Solastalgia, you include your own beautiful essay about your childhood love of loons at Thunder Lake and the other creatures there. Would you please read that essay? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So this is called One Path to Solastalgia. The world, for me, began with water and sky, a lake in northern Minnesota set amid birch and pines, the Milky Way from one horizon to the other. Early I learned to swim, the water clear and cool, the bottom made of sand. I learned the life that shared that water, the green tiger-striped perch, the speckled brown ribbons of leech, the legions of minnows flashing silver in the shallows. I was lucky, that's all. My grandfather had grown up on the Iowa prairie, came north once, and never forgot. He and my grandmother began to dream of a cabin near a forest lake. My parents joined that dream, and when I was just able to stand, they built a small house with a screen porch on the second story's southwest corner. I've spent years on that porch, watching thunderstorms sweep across the lake, tall pines swirling, lightning revealing a nighttime world, velvet darkness, huge moon, summer symphony of frog, insect, owl that imprinted on me. Standing on the dock with my head tilted back was like taking a long, wonderful drink, stars pouring down. What a gift to know that sky as a child and to carry it through life. Around me were black bear, gray wolf, red fox, moose, Fireflies with their yellow-green lamps, dragonflies with their stained-glass wings, butterflies on wildflower blooms. The world was filled with wild things, and I was one among them. And the loons, this sleek red-eyed bird, black and checkered white, sliding from the lake's surface into its depths, racing after its fish. And the call a long, drawn-out wail that biologists say is the message to its mate asking, where are you? On calm nights, that call drifts across the water, echoes in the woods. As a child, I try to capture those notes on cassette tapes, take them back to the city for winter listening. But the sound out of place was never the same, an early lesson in the difficulty of saving something loved. For a long while, a childhood, all I did was fall in love with this bird, this lake, and the world of which both were part. I began to see the changes during my teenage years. Driving north, I saw the city spread. Warehouses and big box stores where open fields of oaks and wildflowers had been. 
and at the lake, new house after new house, the starry night fading with ever more lights. By the time I reached college, my knowledge of the world was growing too, of wild places everywhere being paved and cut and burned and plowed. I mourned places I'd never visited and now would never know. I mourned as I saw falling population numbers of the storybook animals I'd known as a child, lions and tigers, elephants and bears, their real-world versions disappearing. After college, I chased my rock star dreams, but had inconveniently grown up happy with a loving family and now had a stable, long-term girlfriend. I did not have good rock and roll material, in other words, so I wrote songs about the animals and birds whose homes were being destroyed. I wished I could make it stop, the insatiable expansion, the constant building, the steady loss of green. About this time, I found Aldo Leopold's A Sand County Almanac, a small book of story and philosophy written by the father of wildlife ecology for a lay audience and published in 1949. Seventy-some years ago, Leopold could see the direction we were heading. And while as a scientist and middle-aged man writing in the 1940s, he didn't often share his emotions, we know he suffered from a sense of being surrounded by fellow Americans who didn't seem to notice or to care as we humans, we colonizing white humans especially, wrecked the world that sustains us with food, water, energy, and spirit. One of the penalties of an ecological education, Leopold wrote, is that one lives alone in a world of wounds. I read those words and thought, that's how I feel. I was someone who loved wild places and wild things, caught in a society that rewards those who see the planet as theirs to use however they like, an economic system that facilitates the destruction of the natural world, a culture that craves short-term profit over long-term life. This feeling of being alone has never left me. I know the religious, political, and cultural reasons why people might believe that humans are separate from and above the rest of creation, the reasons people seem oblivious as our fellow creatures disappear, the reasons people vote for politicians who in turn vote for ecological ruin. But at some level, I've just never understood how people can be this way. Some of me will probably always be the child asking, why? For Leopold, this feeling of being alone led to a choice. An ecologist must either harden his shell and make believe that the consequences of science are none of his business, he wrote, or he must be the doctor who sees the marks of death in a community that believes itself well and does not want to be told otherwise. In other words, we can ignore what scientists are telling us about what we're doing to ourselves, our homes, our children's future, or we can protect, heal, and fight for what we love. Politician, policymaker, parent, poet, if every one of us chose to be the doctor in whatever way we know best, what good we could do, what a future we could create. For me, the choice has always been clear. I can't imagine not trying to be the doctor in my own way. And while the feeling of being alone remains, I know I'm not alone. The writers in this book are one proof of that. I think now the question isn't how to avoid feeling alone, but rather how to feel that loneliness while also savoring the joy and wonder still available at every turn. It's a way of being in the world that I've been learning a lot about lately. Almost four years ago, I became a father. My daughter was born during what sometimes seems like the final years of the world I've known, and the changes predicted for her lifetime are overwhelming. But I knew this when I chose to become a parent. What I didn't know was how being a father would be better than I could imagine, and my love for my daughter greater than any I have felt before. It's this love I'm thinking of now, and the epigraph to a favorite book, Jim Harrison's Dalva. We loved the earth, but could not stay. It works the other way, too. We know we cannot stay, but still we love the earth. Or, as Solastalgia would tell us, we cannot stay in the world we love, 
for that world is being radically changed by forces beyond our control, and still we love. The question for me, the question Solastalgia asks, will be how. What will it mean to love the living world, lake, loons, daughter, and on, when so much of that world is being destroyed? Of this, I'm sure, love is the emotion that leads to every other. Fear, grief, anger, happiness, joy, hope. It is the emotion to trust and follow as we find our way. We begin with water and sky, or mountains, or desert, or trees. We begin with animals, or birds, or seasons, or the sea. We stand under stars, absorbing their light. We feel the small hand in our own, the bones like those in a bird's wing fanned, the fragility and the growing strength both. Alive now in this turbulent time, we do what we can, and we do all we can. We remember what was, imagine what could be, and learn to give thanks again and again. Your daughter is Amelie. Yes, yes. I noticed you dedicated your book to her for Amelie that you know we loved this world. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's such a motivator for me now, you know, just to want her to know that when she gets older and becomes more aware of the world and looks around, uh, she says, Dad, what were you doing? What did you do? I want to have a good answer. She loves loons, I assume. Yeah, she does. Even at, uh, she's uh, two weeks from being five years old, but she already loves the lake and loves loons. There are 34 essays, and everyone's grief and joy in nature is very different. Give me a taste for some of the other essays and what people wrote about that really struck you. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the fun is that, especially with kind of a wide open prompt uh, that I gave, you know, not really knowing what people would say. I mean, I knew that a lot of people would write about grief. That's an obvious one. But then how you write about grief is different for everybody. And uh, other people wrote about um, anger. That was a great one, especially for me as a Minnesota kid who, you know, we're taught to not be angry, you know, <laughs> to have the, have these essays come in. I remember one from Kathleen Dean Moore, who's just a fantastic writer. And she said, you know, I don't know if this is what you had in mind when you asked me to write about Solastalgia, but here's my essay. And it was just all about how pissed she is as a grandmother, um, the world that her grandkids are going to inherit. That's a fantastic one. I love the essay from the poet Joan Kane, uh, an Alaska native writer who wrote a piece about... Um, all the, her relatives who are dying and the place names that are disappearing and her language that's disappearing. And when I first got it, I thought, wait, you know, this doesn't, isn't exactly what I was looking for. And now it's just one of my favorite pieces. You know, she really is uh, writing about solastalgia in a way nobody else does. Um, Laura Nalene, who teaches at, at JMU, uh, her elegy at the edge of infinity about growing up in Trinidad and Tobago is just breathtaking. And the way that she weaves in three poems into her essay is in form different than anybody else and fantastic. Um, Drew Lanham, uh, you know, a recent MacArthur fellow, I, I take some pride that he got the MacArthur after he, uh, you know, submitted his essay to Solastalgia. <laughs> Maybe there's a connection, but yeah. his essay, Why I Write for Birds, is um, really powerful and wonderful. Um, I love the essay by, um, oh, that starts the book, actually. I didn't want to skip over that one, but from Laura uh, England from Appalachian State, from Boone. Her essay, What If She Had Lived, where she links Rachel Carson, her mother, and uh, her friend. And, uh, you know, that is just, well, I put it first in the book for a reason. It's so powerful and so beautiful and speaks to solastalgia so well. Um, those would be some of the ones that really stand out to me. You know, you mentioned earlier in your own essay, Aldo Leopold, who wrote A Sand County Almanac, there were so many men and women like him, fabulous writers and thinkers about nature. What about E.O. Wilson, the great scientist who focused on ants and, you know, colonies yeah. and emotions and, and togetherness, but who late in his life called for preserving half the earth? 
Yeah, Eo Wilson, uh, a a giant, I want to say, which is funny when he, you know, he was a, a, a an expert with ants. But you know, Eo Wilson, um, we use this term, the Anthropocene. You know, the the time of humans, but. Um, Eo Wilson suggested uh, that it was actually uh, the an age of loneliness that we were entering into as we decimated uh, habitats and and said goodbye to uh, our our fellow creatures. Um, that it was actually we were creating a world in which we would be lonely, we would miss them, and that relates really well to the idea of solastalgia, I think too. I forgot to even ask you where that term comes from. Solastalgia. Sounds to me a little bit like nostalgia. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. It, it certainly has that same nostalgia part of it, meaning pain. Um, the term solastalgia comes from a man named Glenn Albrecht, who's an um, environmental philosopher in Australia, who uh, about 20 years ago uh, was hearing from a lot of his neighbors in the upper Hunter Valley in New, New South Wales uh, their their desolation, their devastation at the um, deep uh, open pit coal mining that was destroying this place that they had lived in for so long. And he realized that he really, he was struggling to find the language to describe what they were feeling. And so soul nostalgia is very much like nostalgia, except nostalgia is missing a place or time in the past. And soul nostalgia is feeling the pain of seeing... Uh, as he says, the lived experience of the desolation of a much-loved landscape, right? It's happening as we're in that place. Another way he describes it is the homesickness we feel while we're still at home, right? It, it's in the moment. It's it's what so many of us are recognizing uh, increasingly these days is just that things are not right. Things have changed. The weather is weird. Um you know the the birds and animals and plants that we were so used to aren't aren't returning that kind of thing we're recognizing it now and it the the first part of the word the solace does come from the same root as that word solace and basically albrecht's um point was that nature our surroundings our place have forever provided us with a, a, a kind of solace and that we're losing that that solace and it's it's creating this these feelings of pain in us. You know, when I was little, we'd leave the windows open and the screens were there, and the sound of the crickets and the spring peepers was deafening. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, insects is, uh, well, first of all, that's really beautiful, right? The the sounds of, of insects, summer insects, um, which in this part of the country is, is really, I, I, I've experienced that firsthand and it's so beautiful. It's, it's certainly true in, in Minnesota as well and so many other places. But um, yeah, insect populations, you might know, you know, around the world seem to be in decline as well. And so we're, you know, another part of this disappearing world that we're talking about. I think for me, my moment of soul nostalgia that is deepest and hits me right in the heart is the remembrance of traveling back to my father's homeland along the Gulf Coast of Mississippi and Louisiana and seeing one year upon arrival the giant casinos that had been erected on the warm, sparkling waters of the Gulf Coast in the water. So they even blocked the view of the rest of the Gulf. And you thought, how could we destroy this place like this? Yeah, no doubt. And, and you know, the amazing thing is that um, everybody I talk to has a story like that. You know, it's very common. And if you've lived long enough to, to love a place, you have probably seen it changed. And some of us have, have seen real severe change, like the, the, the change you describe. So it's, a, it's an increasingly common story. Uh, everywhere I go, everyone I talk to has this, this uh, lament. But as you gathered these essays and started to shape them into the arc of your collection, you actually divided the book into five different groups. And um, talk a little bit about that, because there's there's a hopeful group. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think at some level they're all hopeful. Uh, one of the things, stories that I tell is that when I discovered the word solastalgia back when I was researching The End of Night, it spoke to my grief. And that's what I identified with. You know, this was, here's this word that really spoke to me and as it speaks to so many people. 
But in the years since, I've really come to understand that it's a word that has its foundation in our love for things. And so I, I see solastalgia as actually a positive word, um, a word that does have hope. And Glenn Albrecht, the guy who coined the term, actually says that, you know, solastalgia can be reversed through our working on things, right, through being active. And so throughout this book, I wanted to pair the pain of solastalgia with that sense of hope. Um, so uh, part one, grieve and give thanks, right? Grieve is so important. It's so important that we feel that emotion of grief, um, but also to feel that emotion of gratitude, right? That And that is part of the way to um, to to deal with our our pain, essentially. So the five parts are um, all answers to the question of, I feel this solastalgia. Now, what can I do about it? Paul Bogard, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Paul Bogart's new book is Solastalgia, an anthology of emotion in a disappearing world. Published by the University of Virginia Press, his other recent books include The End of Night and The Ground Beneath Us. Support for this episode of With Good Reason comes from the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. This is a charitable trust created by the will of acclaimed 20th century artist Joseph Cornell, that honors the memory of the artist and his younger brother, Robert. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Costo and Liliana Bukowski are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. To comment or for the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>